I had a client once who had been through some interpersonal trauma at school. And when we talked about The Legend of Zelda, she would light up. When she talked about playing Link, she would light up. She saw him as this powerful and wise and wonderful, courageous character. And so I said, okay, what would Link do in the situation at school where you have to walk up to your locker? My client then went to school thinking, okay, if I were Link, how would I be behaving right now? And then applying that behavior. All of a sudden, new life was breathed into her. So those kinds of things can help us understand what it is to feel confident in ourselves. And if we don't have our own confidence, we can borrow it from our favorite characters. And then we can build it ourselves because we have it there somewhere inside of us. That is the best example of the Proteus effect I could possibly imagine. <laughs> Hello world, this is SpartyCast. Hello and welcome to SpartyCast. I'm Dr. Robbie Rutan, host of the podcast and director of the lab, the Sparty Lab here at Michigan State University. This is episode number 26 with Dr. Sarah Hayes. She works at takethis.org and queer esports and is also a practicing clinician who uses video games and avatars in her therapy. We talk about her work as a clinician, but also the general geek therapeutics movement. What, what a cool name, what a cool idea. The idea of bringing geek culture or pop culture into therapy. And we talk about how there's a great potential to use video games and virtual reality, not just to help with therapy, but to, in fact, be better than traditional approaches to therapy because of how they can be integrated into um, people's lives. People are passionate about games and, and so they can connect to them more easily. We talk about Avatars also, of course, because, you know, I love avatars. The Proteus effect is relevant to her research, though, of course, she doesn't think about it as, as a theoretician. She's not thinking, oh, I'm going to apply the Proteus effect now. No, she's having her patients work with avatars that represent ideal selves, and that is a way for them to express elements of their identity that they're not and perhaps heal traumas that they've experienced in their actual selves. And I'm truly inspired, I hope as her clients are as well, to think about this area and the applications of research in real clinical therapy and real applied approaches to helping people heal and experience well-being, live more mild, mindfully and, and be healthy. And I think that's, it's nice to see that there's actual good being done in the world. <laughs> um, with some of the technologies that people in my field study. But people are skeptical, and she talks about that too. She talks about how people in her field might see using games for therapy as misguided because they're just games. They're just a hobby. Um, and and she, she uses a great phrase. Remind them, games are really just playable books. And so if we, if we can see the value in books, we should also be able to see the value in games. Of course, not all games are created equally, not all books are written equally. And that's why a professional, highly trained guide such as Dr. Hayes is an excellent resource for people to seek out well-being. I hope you enjoy the episode and find it as fun as I did. 
I am so pleased to have Dr. Sarah Hayes on our podcast. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much. Yeah, so we got connected through the episode I did with Dr. B, um, Raphael, who's also at Take This, and you are at Take This, amongst other things, right? Yes. Yep. So I'm a clinical contributor for Take This. You'll see me doing workshops, panels, talks, and I've also written lots of articles for them. Um, so you'll see me throughout kind of a smattering of their content, um, some of the mental health minutes. And then I also am a mentorship lead for Queer Women of Esports, and I co-host a sex-positive sex ed show for them called After Dark. And then I'm also technically a clinician, <laughs> that's my main source of income, um, for uh, the virtual Seattle, Washington area, although I am geographically located on the East Coast. So, All right. Wow, yeah. lots of stuff. So your day <laughs> job is clinician. Yes. Dr. B said I should reach out, and I'm very excited that I did because you do some avatar related work and yes i often come to avatars as <laughs> uh, my few listeners may may recognize but certainly my students i'm always talking about avatars and the effects they have on people and mm -hmm. i'm really excited to hear your take on how avatars relate to mental health aha uh -huh. so um way back before i started any of the nonprofit work or games industry efforts um i started out for my doctoral program and even in my master's specialized in video games, I sought whatever kind of a report I could write if it was about the brain. I made analogies to Mario platformers and how memory on ADHD is like how everything kind of wipes behind and you can't go backwards. You just have to find your way forward. So it's always been about video games. And then when I got to my dissertation, I, I decided to study what we all have in common amongst each other who favor the same avatars. So I looked at individually played role-playing and adventure games that are story-driven, predetermined, um, including like Lara Croft from Tomb Raider, um, Nate from Uncharted and um, uh, other characters like that Link from Legend of Zelda series uh, and wanted to know demographically what the things we have in common for people who say that's my favorite character and then personality what we also have in common and while because I was really inclusive in my survey both racially um, and with like sexual identity and gender identifiers thus when you're doing a study it's hard to collect incredibly significant data in smaller numbers if you have that many identifiers because you're going to have smaller pools of people responding but from the data that i did find the results included things like um straight white men favored link over other avatars um pretty much everybody else who didn't fit into those three categories favored laura croft over most of the others um, or we could look at personality people who had pretty even keel personality um, favored roland from red dead redemption um, so so i found out some data from that and from there my passion from avatars has only grown um, in my clinical practice i also look at how avatars can help us explore our own identities. I published a chapter in um, in a book called Video Games and Wellbeing, edited by Rachel Cowart, who is another Take This staff member. She's our research director. Um, in that book, I talked all about how we can use a character like from Skyrim to explore ourselves and understand our identity and try something different. And it's amazing the things that happen when we allow ourselves creativity to consider who's our ideal self, what do we want to be like, and how can we use an avatar in that position for our advantage? There's That's just kind of a super interesting. Yeah. And um, this is the 
optimistic Sherry Turkle of the 90s. Um, <laughs> Sherry Turkle, for those of you who don't know, is this renowned researcher at MIT who at the beginning of the virtual world kind of um, the, the, the frontier early on said, all right, people are going to explore their identities. They're going to mm -hmm. be all sorts of different people. And then I think later on, she became disillusioned and said, oh, this isn't really happening. People aren't exploring identities that much, except for maybe in a few categories. So my understanding is that it's people who want to uh, experiment with gender identity or want to express their sexual orientation in a way that they can't in their physical environment. So is, is that um, the sense you get from your research as well? So I would say that even when I did my dissertation, which was published, well, it was confirmed and finalized in 2018. So we're looking at three years ago from date of recording, um, almost exactly, actually. It was finalized on August 22nd. So happy three-year dissertation completion to me. <laughs> but I, I would say that part of when you, when you write those papers, when you write a dissertation, one of the most obnoxious parts of the process, but at the same time, one of the things that makes you an expert is you have to research everything everybody else has done up to the point of you writing that thing. So I have learned a whole bunch about this. And I would say yes and no, because while she's right that a lot of people use it mostly to explore identity in the gender and sexual orientation ways, like I know a lot of non-binary identifying individuals who look at um, video game characters as a way to express themselves more comfortably because then if they have body dysmorphia or they're like, I don't identify with having certain body parts, I can play a character that doesn't have those body parts and it feels a lot better because that feels synchronous to who I am on the inside, yes. And at the same time, for a variety of reasons, I um, people also play avatars to explore and feel more at themselves in other ways. Like, um, so if we look at morality in gaming, people play games like, oh, I'm gonna date myself here, but um, from my high school days, there was games like Bully or Grand Theft Auto, San Andreas, where you could play pretty nasty characters. You could do nasty things, illegal things, hurtful things. Obviously there's, there's like, the bread and butter of gaming where if if you're playing games that involve shooting or conquering bad guys or enemies you you have to kill other people or other creatures and so there's exploration to be had there too about morality and people are learning about what feels right and wrong and this is where the games like undertale and um heavy trigger warnings on this one but doki doki literature club have so much pull and hold us so tight with the story because they play on our morals, but morals are different for everyone. And it makes us challenge and learn what those morals are about, or even about racial identity. Games like Mafia 3 offer a lot of exploration about what it is to be in the situation of someone different from yourself. Like I know I, I played through that game and learned a different aspect of that topic and then have had conversations with others about that those experiences and experiences similar. And it's, it's something that you can't just talk about. Playing a game is exciting because we get to be in it. We get to go through that and feel attached to that avatar. And if the game hits us in the right way, we forget about this person and become that person. And so there's definitely other kinds of exploration and the research is coming out to support that. But I would even argue that back in the day when all of that was starting, Second Life was really, or Sims maybe, like Sims equivalent is what Second Life was. It was like an online 
for those who don't know, um, Second Life was really the big one where we started talking about identity exploration because it was online. Everybody could put on what kind of avatar they wanted. You could be animals, you could be humanoids. Um, and then you could interact with people romantically, platonically, interpersonally, professionally even. Um, and so that makes sense in that context, but we've blown the lid way off. <laughs> um, so are you an optimist about the potential for games to kind of heal or promote well-being through this type of identity exploration? I would argue absolutely. I <laughs> will certainly identify my bias towards that. Um, but also for what it's worth and for the listeners sake, I do practice something called geek therapy. I specialize in geek and pop culture methodology in my clinic work. So I'll include video games, I'll include comic books, I'll include media and sci-fi and movies and TV shows in my homework for my clients in our clinical talk and practice. And so it's it's a bit different. And I would argue that from the work that I've done through that, not because I'm passionate about it as much as because my clients connect with it, um, I've seen wonderful results there and I'm not alone. There's a lot of clinicians. I co-edited a book publishing clinician uh, the first clinician's guide to geek therapy practices um and you there were you're saying geek as in g-e-e-k at first i yeah. thought you said deep therapy but you mean geek <laughs> therapy geek, like geeks and gamers yeah i yep. love it that's yeah. great so is this a term <laughs> that people use in the clinical world it's new but yeah is there a community of geek therapists like they they were they identify as that yeah, there's a few. I was one of the founding members and board members for the initiation of Leyline. Um, it's called Geek Therapeutics. It's a company that does certified, like APA-backed certified trainings for psychologists and clinicians to get continuing education on how to use these kinds of techniques. And that's not the only program out there. There's lots of others. There's game to grow that does Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop role-playing game trainings. There's, I mean, it's, it's, a, wild, it's a wild world, but um, clinically we're pioneering a whole new arena. And then you have clinicians like myself who specialize in working with folks who work in the games industry, especially through my work with Take This, where when we authored the first state of the industry white paper on burnout and crunch and all of the other topics of what was going on in 2019 in the games industry, all of a sudden, it rem I, I would think of it this way. Culturally, when we look at geek culture and, and um, like pop culture in therapeutic context, it's like any other therapeutic context with cultural relevancy it takes down a lot of barriers when someone comes in and says, yeah, you know, I've been getting really frustrated playing Team Fortress with my friends. You know, I, I really struggle with the concept of losing instead of as a clinician focusing on, well, you're playing video games too much and you're getting, it's just a game, let it go. All of a sudden we can look into this really beautifully scaffolded and detailed experience of like, okay, what does losing mean to you? And how do we simulate mindfulness and meditation in those practices? How do we reassign meaning to what losing is with your friends and how you contribute to a social circle? There's, there's healing and growth that happens there. And all of a sudden they enjoy Team Fortress with their friends again. And it had nothing to do with Team Fortress in the first place, but that was the context. So I think it's, it's a cultural relevancy that cuts through that red tape that when we know these things, it's really powerful. Interesting. So yeah. you think traditionally clinicians kind of brushed off games or, or pop culture in general as being um, separate or ancillary to the psychological experience? I mean, I would say they would often, and the way that I learned about it was given about as much credence as any other hobby. 
And for a lot of us, gaming is a passion, just like if you are a literary nerd, any passion, anything we nerd out about, any anything we feel geeks about, there's that it's a it's it's just something we do for fun, sure. But when it's part of your identity, when it's part of how you assign meaning to yourself, then it becomes clinically relevant. So I think it's just not disregarding anything that's that's a passion, including games, because games have been seen as things for children. Um, but that's categorically untrue, especially as current generations continue to grow up. That is so fascinating and really exciting. Um, in some ways, I'm sure people might be a little afraid to accept that this is this is an, a normal clinical practice. I imagine, <laughs> there, as Rachel has has talked about, there's moral panics about all new media technologies, games. Now we're looking, we're seeing mm -hmm. the metaverse as this term that the industry is very excited about. What do you think it will take for acceptance to get beyond the fringe and become a normal practice? I mean, time is a big one. Also, I think reframing and looking critically at how we categorize gaming, like my mom has played solitaire on her computer for as long as I can remember. That's gaming. She's a regular gamer, <laughs> but we don't think of it that way because she's playing solitaire. So I think that's where we just normalize and think about these integrations. But then again, we also need to look at the facts. Like over 70% of United States households have a dedicated gaming council in their home. That's an overwhelming majority, right? Like that's so many people, that's, that's three quarters of households. So knowing that this isn't going anywhere, knowing that children aren't suddenly becoming scary. I don't know if you saw the, um, I know Rachel has posted about this several times, but there's um, like a, it almost looks like a homunculus, like this simulated gamer man of and like what will look like if we sit at a desk for 50 years or play video games forever like no because there's a life balance right and and remembering that gaming isn't this wormhole we go down and can never return from there's still life to be had outside of a screen but i think also the pandemic and thus working from home and having less in-person context has normalized a lot of it a lot faster um gaming has become a real escape and regulation tool for a lot of us. Like look at Animal Crossing, that wouldn't have been nearly as popular if the pandemic didn't happen. But um, I think even seeing games like that regularly in the media will help calm down some of that moral panic. And it made parents and individuals look a lot harder at how long is screen time allowed? What value does screen time hold? How do I utilize it with my child and create boundaries around it? And for us adults, how do we structure? How do we create space? How do we recharge? And how do we feel healthy around this thing that we thought was a hobby, but is really actually something that can unlock adventures? It's just a playable book, but all of us who, are, who like games and are used to geek culture can say that all day until our faces are blue, but you know, it just takes time. It's just a playable book. I love that expression. <laughs> Can I use that forever yeah, and ever? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it. yeah, it's an engaged way of playing a book. I mean, most games, games like Fortnite try to insert a story, but there's usually more of a social aspect to it or a competitive aspect to it. But it's like, okay, then it's a virtual version of a sport. Would That's you ever meet a client and do therapy in a virtual space? I mean, we're, we're in a virtual space right now. I'm sure you saw clients on Zoom. I didn't. Um, 
I oh. didn't and oh, really? for the same reason. Um, okay. So HIPAA and privacy are really tantamount to therapy. They're so important. And so I use an application called VC, which you have to sign a special like contract called a BAA with in order to guarantee HIPAA compliance. There's special encryption processes. So that is my hesitancy. Now it is noteworthy to mention that during COVID, some of the HIPAA regulations were altered in order to accommodate using platforms like Zoom that while their efforts towards encryption are, are escalating and I believe at the date of this recording have actually improved to the, to the point that I probably would have felt comfortable using Zoom. But in the beginning of the pandemic, not every video app was up to snuff for HIPAA compliance. So that would be my major thing. What I will say I will do, we will not have any clinical conversations but I will occasionally with other, with some of my clients, we will play a game and then have a virtual conversation like you and I are having on Zoom um, on VC and then play the game in the game. But no one knows who my friends are. No one knows, like all of that is private and locked down. So I can meet virtually with, with my clients and no one will know that that's what's happening. But I'm not going to jump into like a battle royale lobby with my client where other people can see our party. Yeah. So let's say, let's say uh, HIPAA wasn't an issue. Let's say that there was a HIPAA approved virtual world <laughs> or, or there was a HIPAA approved method of setting up privacy settings in VR chat. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're in a oh. private space, presumably no one's eavesdropping um, according to the terms of service, et cetera. <laughs> all the lawyers have checked all the boxes. Um, do you think your therapy could be enhanced in some ways through that? Absolutely. So. Okay. Yes. And VR is an area that before COVID, before everything happened, I was introducing to the clinical space and I know other clinics do it too. Um, so there's some clinics out in North Carolina that do this. There's, um, there's a bunch. I really have to say that video games and virtual reality have become more present in therapy as time has passed over the past probably five years, I would argue. Um, those of us practicing this and for some longer, but really the push for it to become part of the clinical space is so new. This is so young. Um, but the research is coming out that it's helpful. So yes, absolutely. I have used VR personally in clinical settings to help people. Like I had an elderly client who was in her late 80s who was never going to be able to visit her hometown again. We put on Google Earth on the VR headset and I turned on music to simulate Cape Cod and she was able to go there and it was the most beautiful and touching experience because she could see, we could go and travel and find her home, see the ocean, visit things that she wasn't able to visit, her favorite places, her favorite restaurants, and she could have some of that closure um, in a way that she couldn't have without virtual reality. Alternately, there are art applications that we can use. There's, there's lots of beautiful ways to engage in therapy to help, like ways that we would normally do things. And of course, with even with application of video games, it's a, it's a supplementary layer on top of research-backed clinical practices, just to clarify. So like I use CBT a lot, it's cognitive behavioral therapy that is um, helping with reframes and mental exercises of understanding your world better in a different framework um, or narrative therapy where you tell your life in a story and changing the way that story is told impacts how we see ourselves. And so using narrative therapy through a game, through an avatar, can be incredibly powerful. Creating a D&D &D character that represents our ideal self 
and even simulating play through that character to help us embolden ourselves, strengthen social skills that we feel weak upon, but it's not us, it's the character, but then we apply those skills back in real life. That's just practicing social skills to reduce social anxiety. That's DBT, CBT, clinical practice efforts anyways. So VR, we can do lots of this like art therapy where we would paint or color with clients. Like I, with, with my child clients, sometimes I'll ask them to color their day and they'll get a circle or a square or whatever shape they want. And then they'll put different colors that represent different emotions. And then I can see the mural of what their emotional scape is for the day. That would be so much more powerful in a VR experience. They can even create an environment, create trees, create the ground, the, the flora and fauna, choose a landscape, or we can do simulation of things. Like I had a client who had a needle phobia. Boy, wouldn't it be nice to have been able to bring that into the medical clinic that I worked at at the time and have them put on the VR headset and simulate that so there's no pain. There's no, so it's an elevated level of exposure therapy, but it's not to the point where they're going and getting a needle pushed into them. Pardon for anyone who has needle fears or who's listening who doesn't like that. Um, but that's a great way of stepping up exposure therapy. So absolutely. Yeah, I've heard of exposure therapy in VR research, uh, though it's been a decade since I've read up on it, relating to <laughs> PTSD and yeah. arachnophobia. But I can imagine for any any type of fear, being able to control the level ex of exposure and kind of monitor your client's anxiety as they're going through that and oh, yeah. dial it up and down and, and that controlled environment is probably way more efficient and effective, as you said, when guided by something like CBT or other established clinical practices. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you're saying still there's not a widespread adoption. So no. um, it's, we're, we're slow to really make this technology accessible. And do you think, so is HIPAA the main um, barrier? And if so, are people working on explaining the laws and the regulations? I don't even think HIPAA is the main barrier, honestly. Oh. I think it's technological literacy for clinicians. Oh, yeah, and cultural literacy, like cultural competency. Mm -hmm. I think so often we are we are faced with meeting with clients who who are different from ourselves or are similar to ourselves. And like any other topic, say that I meet with a client who is Buddhist and I don't know much about Buddhism. Either I need to get supervision from someone who does know a lot about Buddhism and then do research or get continuing education in order to ethically serve that client. I think this is true in the same sense, but the truth is you can sit down and play some Candy Crush and get on board with your client very quickly and very easily. So, I mean, some of that is being willing to sit down and play the game, getting yourself familiar enough to the technology to be able to leverage it to your own like use. For example, I had a client diagnosed with OCD who we were treating it and they loved Farmville. And so I said, okay, you can play Farmville as much as you want. That's fine, but you can't organize your crops. This is a common strategy in OCD treatment where we will say, um, do the thing that frightens you on a small scale to prove that the world isn't going to fall apart if you do it. This is just in a different context, but if I didn't know what Farmville was or that you could organize your crops or any of that was happening, I couldn't leverage that product in order to be able to engage with it with my clients. So I think that's the real barrier is how to hold the controller. Like I have, I have a client who is currently working with um, a variety of, of mood stability situations while playing certain online games. 
So I will have them do a screen share with me and I'll watch them and they will engage in playing that game and we'll real time talk about it. That's something that clinicians can do as long as they understand the basic rules of a game. But until they understand the basic premise and rules of that game, they can't do that effectively. So I think that's the barrier. <laughs> this is this is so cool. Um, so you're you're clearly at the cutting edge. Um, I thought I'd be asking you all about avatars, but actually I'm going back. <laughs> to, I'm I'm loving the big picture here because um, it really illustrates to me that a change is afoot, um, yes. and I guess it has to happen at the educational level then, right? Absolutely. Like if, if you're not trained in technological literacy as a clinician and you go out into the world, then unless I, I assume you weren't trained in this, you just happen to have an interest and it, and it connected well. Yes. Well, and I mean, define connected well. I had a really great experience at my school. I will say that openly and outright. I had professors who supported my passions and interests, did not judge my presentations because I decided to include Mario or Skyrim and instead asked me, how do we work with this? I had a dissertation chair whose husband plays, um, who, whose husband plays um, PUBG and children play Mario Kart. So she had a little bit of an understanding and she said, let's roll with it and just learned with me, which is the thing that we all need to do as we grow and change as a society, as clinicians, as ethical clinicians, we have to do that because that's what the world is and we serve the world. So I think that was an exceptional experience. While this is changing, there are colleges who now have esports programs and teaching individuals how to enter the esports industry. We also have programs that include topics like gaming, like the Chicago School of Professional Psychology was probably one of the first institutions to have courseworks on things like comics and allegory and application to therapeutic contexts, like Batman is great for trauma, um, different conversations around things like that. So we're starting to see it, but again, it's new, it's different. A lot of people balk at it. I can't tell you how many colleagues I have had. Um, well, I can tell you there's like 30 or 40 of us who do this, but it's growing. <laughs> but how many uh, PhD or society colleagues who've tried to write their dissertation on video games and have run into so many barriers from professionals above them, professors, guide, uh, guidance and mentors and individuals above them saying, no one's going to take this seriously. Nobody's going to care about this. Video games are a hobby. And so we have to push through that barrier first in order to be able to get people into the research and so I'm glad that this is changing. And we have people out there who are doing this research, both in comms work, um, like comms majors and comms professors are also doing this. There's a lot of great individuals out there doing that work as well. Um, and that really, I think, bridges that barrier between clinicians and, and the research of, okay, look into communications. For my dissertation, I had to pull from philosophy to understand sense of being, sense of presence, and sense of self. I had to pull from communications and theology and look at how do we understand meaning and morals and our, and our identity. And then I had to pull from psychology of like, okay, how do we look at sense of self from a psychological perspective? So I think opening our minds to being collaborative, opening our minds to being willing to allow students to flourish in their interests. And then at the same time, upticking our understanding of how games work and what they can do. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's an uphill battle because as we know, grandmas and iPhones don't mix sometimes because that technological literacy gets overwhelming. And so as some of us in the field get older, it's harder to do, but if we can just even Google a couple YouTube videos to understand it or take a continuing education course on how to apply TV characters, it's so powerful when someone's like, yes, my favorite show is Buffy, and now you really understand why I imagine conquering my demons is slaying vampires. 
it's not that big of a reframe. So it's just a playable like, book. That's it. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah, this is really, this is relatively new for me because I, I sit on the research side um, mm -hmm. and I live in the communication and technology world where we're always thinking about games and new media and how people use them and they're meaningful. And then we measure outcomes relating to presence, like you said, self uh, kind of expression or identification, but we never make that link to clinical therapy. We, yeah. I mean, these are the conversations where I get closest to it. Um, so I find this really fascinating. I think it's really cool that you're doing it. I wonder then where are the biggest bridges being built and how could I and, and my, my field of, you know, hundreds of media effects scholars or media psychology, we call ourselves, um, where, where do I point them? When, when, I, when I want to kind of promote the acceptance of these types of approaches to therapy? So these kinds of approaches to therapy, if you look at, like I had mentioned before, Leyline or Geek Therapeutics, you can look at um, game to grow is wonderful with tabletop gaming. They've created their very own um, game system called Critical Core, where it teaches social skills to kids through D&D. Or if you just look at really applied methodology, I would personally, that's how I have found my path to practice with this in an integrated fashion, is how are we applying different contexts, right? Because we can look at art and now we know so many ways we can apply art to therapy. This is so very similar. We just have to think about how are we applying people's personal lives into the therapeutic context and how are we helping them connect home with things that they're doing. So just like a treatment plan is personalized to the person with clinically relevant objectives, this is no less true. Those can be part of that, those objectives. And so if we have an open mind around, okay, how do I engage in applied methodology? That's going to be a big bridge if you're not interested in connecting with an org because game to grow and uh, Geek Therapeutics do offer training courses, but they come at a cost. So if you're looking just to kind of explore and understand, applied methods are great. You can also read up on the, the numerous links and articles of educational materials we have at takethis.org. Um, you can do searches into, there's lots of articles now coming out about um, like the allegory of uh, Batman and psychology. There's lots of books out about those things. I have, I mean, the bookshelf behind me, I'm, I'm just going to turn over here. All of those books are about gaming and psychology and, and looking at the literature that other people are, are publishing about that is, is helpful if you're getting used to the context. But if you know those things, you probably have several of those books on my shelf. Okay. So there's, there's a wealth of information out there. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And some of these terms are, are definitely going to be new to people in my field. The idea of applied methodology, yeah. that's, that's a, a clinical methodology that's applying, I guess, a passion. That's uh, a concept I haven't heard of when we, when we say applied, we often mean like applied theory. When we say methodology, we often mean like surveys or experiments. So, yeah. um, so that, that's very good to know. <laughs> I've taken a lot of your time. I have one last question. Have you heard of the Proteus effect? Oh, I have. And I don't, I don't know why your brain does that thing when you're on camera and you're talking to somebody and it matters that you remember what that means. Sure. That it's, it does that. it's such a strange coincidence because literally at this very moment, <laughs> your recording paused for me. 
like, like literally the camera has paused. Okay, so the Proteus effect, I'll remind you, it's this phenomenon that when you use an avatar in a virtual environment, like a headset, or even just on a flat screen that has certain characteristics, you're more likely to conform to those characteristics. Yes. So if you use a taller avatar, you'll negotiate more aggressively. My favorite is if you use an inventor avatar, like lab coat and clipboard, you'll come up with more creative ideas and a brainstorming mm -hmm. task. Uh, some friends and I wrote a meta-analysis and it's been uh, done in now, I guess, 50 plus studies. And it's a, it seems to be a robust, small to medium effect size when it's nice. done well in the lab. So um, can you imagine that being used in therapy? Like, let's say I, I'm That's exactly what I do. Yeah. Okay, good. Go. <laughs> so I will often, do you know much about D&D? A little bit. Okay. So in Dungeons and Dragons, for the listeners who aren't aware, um, you create a character based on several different aspects, including um, race and occupation, heritage. Um, so like you choose how wealthy your character was. You choose um, if, your if your character is an orc, so big and strong and kind of discriminated against, although the field is trying to kind of make a shift on that, or elves who come from higher society or humans or humanoids or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you choose those kinds of things, but you also choose whether or not your, uh, a, your class is like a magician or a ranger or a beast master or um, all, all sorts of various things. And so there's a lot of customization and then you choose how strong, how charismatic, how um, sturdy your character is through your constitution, how wise or intelligent your character is, how uh, lithe and um, acrobatic your character is, and then you get to play as that character that you've created. Now, this is not dissimilar to avatar creation in a video game, but with much more customization options, because in many video games, what you'll run into is like, um, in the beginning of my chapter that I wrote for Rachel's book, I note that when I played Shadow of Mordor, the first game, you have two options. You have the main male protagonist or you have the main female protagonist. But the problem is the cutscenes only show the male protagonist. And then later on in the story, you actually do a side quest with the female protagonist, but as an in-game character. So it's very like, not ideal for that context. But I'll do, I'll pull out a D&D character sheet and I'll build an ideal self-character with my clients and then see how they feel imagining living as that character if their character has a tail um at home when no one's looking i'll have them practice wearing a tail to see how that makes them feel different think about that charisma score and how they can be a more charismatic person especially through things like text message or email where we have lots of practice we can edit and change things before we hit send um, i'll encourage them to take that character and play a one shot with friends which is a game of dnd that is held with one session within a few hours you play a story beginning to end um, but it's just really prettied up improv, right? So similarly in video games, I'll sit down with someone and have them create a character in Skyrim. Are they sneaky? Are they clever? Are they tall? Are they short? What race are they? And how do they want to build themselves? Are they a fighter? Are they an archer? And then those things only translate back to how do we identify ourselves? What are the things and aspects that we wish for? And how do we simulate and practice those? I had a client once who had been through some interpersonal trauma at school and she was scared and had changed into a shell of her former self. And when we talked about The Legend of Zelda, she would light up. When she talked about playing Link, she would light up. She saw him as this powerful and wise and wonderful, courageous character. And so I said, okay, what would Link do in, in 
the situation at school where you have to walk up to your locker. What would Link do when he's walking between classes? How would he hold himself? How would he do those things? So by imagined experience, my client then went to school thinking, okay, if I were Link, how would I be behaving right now? And then applying that behavior. Um, all of a sudden, new life was breathed into her. She stopped wearing pajamas every day. She was more comfortable in her own skin. She was more confident. And she then felt more empowered to do this more. She doubled down. So those kinds of things can help us understand what it is to feel confident in ourselves. And if we don't have our own confidence, we can borrow it from our favorite characters. And then we can build it ourselves because we have it there somewhere inside of us. That is the best example of the Proteus effect I could possibly imagine. <laughs> WWLD, uh -huh. what would Link do? <laughs> that is amazing. And wow, it's really, it brings it full circle for me because, um, you know, these theories that, that we play with and test in the lab are, they're just, they're interesting. They might seem valid, um, mm -hmm. but to hear about how it's actually helping people and not that like you read the research paper and are doing it because of that um you came to it through your own mechanisms but it validates i think the the value of the theory and the the value of the field so mm -hmm. thank you so much this conversation was great i took so many <laughs> notes i took literally like three pages of notes i'm gonna uh, write those into the uh the, the description of the episode and and we'll send it out but is there anything Excellent. else you want to add or questions you want to ask Gosh, I could talk about this stuff for hours. It's truly been a pleasure and I'm happy to chat with you. This has been, of course, an energetic conversation. So if there's ever anything you want to chat about, let me know. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. I um, I have it in the back of my mind to write a grant proposal on esports and gender and the Proteus effect. And I was going to yeah. write it this year, but I found out I just got another grant. So I need to wait a couple of years. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, when it rains, it pours good stuff too, I yep. guess. <laughs> um, well, but, but you are in my mind as someone who I will reach out to, to help me think through that work. Thank you, Sarah. Yep, absolutely. And uh, if for the researchers out there, if you are looking into esports, there is the esports research network. We are um, on discord as well. I'm, I'm, they just tweeted a podcast recording we had done earlier, I think last year, but they're also out there and they're doing research on this stuff as well. So that's definitely something to check out if you haven't heard of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great Esports yeah. Research Network. Sarah yeah. Hayes from Take This, <laughs> clinician who works with games. Really awesome to meet you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you as well. Okay, that was our interview with Dr. Sarah Hayes. And if you couldn't tell, I'm a huge fan of her work, of her approach, of her attitude toward using games and avatars and eventually virtual reality as mechanisms for enhancing therapy, clinical therapy, mental well-being. Of course, some people might argue we have a, a mental health crisis in the world. Maybe nothing has changed. We've always had this crisis, but it's more visible now. But one thing that has changed is the proliferation of these technologies that can be used to enhance well-being. We often worry about the negative effects of technology, social media causing social comparison that makes you feel bad about yourself, or uh, deprives you of real social or real social experiences, right? But just remind people who have those attitudes that games are really playable books, as Sarah said. Um, but more than that, they are they are objects of art. People are passionate about games. 
and about their avatars, about their virtual experiences as much as they would be about art or literature or music. And there's great value in, in those other things that we recognize as a society, probably because they've been around a long time. Games are just the next iteration and we should be using them to their fullest potential to promote well-being in society. It's a, a very progressive idea, perhaps, just because it's different, it's new, but it makes so much sense to me as a media scholar, someone who I've, I've studied the history of media technologies and the social movements around the way these technologies develop and the industries develop. And you see similar patterns with every mass medium. You see an initial gut reaction of fear that these technologies are, are exposing the youth to cultural elements that are inappropriate or harmful. And then eventually society or maybe uh, just time moves on and recognizes that, oh, actually people are people. These technologies are used for both good and bad purposes and we should promote the good. And I think this episode today, this interview with Dr. Hayes is a great illustration of promoting the good of video games, using video games and virtual worlds and avatars to have a positive impact on individuals' lives, which in the aggregate has a positive impact on society. So I'm super stoked that I had this great opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Hayes, uh, for your time today. And thank you, listener, for subscribing, liking, downloading, telling your mom, telling your dog, telling your mom's dog, telling all the mom's dogs. <laughs> uh, thank you also to our producer, Taylor Halterman, we appreciate all the hard work you do to edit these episodes with my many misstarts and and yelps. <laughs> um, I hope you listener will join the podcast again in the future. Shoot me an email or hit me up on Twitter at R-A-R-A-T-A-N if you have any suggestions about what to do with this podcast. I hope it's going well. At least it's going. And um, yeah. For the moment, we're going, going, gone. Hope you join us next time. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye, world.